She sat in the waiting area outside the CEO's office with a growing sense of dread in her gut. Just a few days earlier, Dana had been sure that her company was going to be expanding and that she would get her long-awaited promotion to vice president. It was going to be so great. And even though the CEO had been making some cryptic comments about stormy weather ahead, she just thought that was prudence rather than a bad sign. She had been filled with happy anticipation. But that was last week. Today, the whole office was eerily quiet, and she saw a guy from IT in the hall who looked like he might have been crying. The CEO's assistant wouldn't make eye contact with her. Now, instead of anticipating a promotion, she feared she might be getting fired. How would she pay her mortgage? What would she tell her staff? Where would she get another job? Why couldn't someone just tell her what was going on? When we face a stressful situation, especially an unexpectedly stressful situation, we seem to be wired up to react in pretty predictable ways. We are fearful and we microscope in on our own situation. People we have seen as friends may become rivals, competitors for any good chance, or at least to avoid a bad one. And we're desperate for information. If we just knew more, if we just had some details, then maybe we could work our way out of this situation. The crisis consumes our entire radar screen. None of us likes to be in those kinds of situations. But when we are we may get a little glimpse of what things were like for the disciples on the night of what we know as the Last Supper. During Lent, we have been traveling with Jesus through the week leading up to his crucifixion, and now we are at Thursday, the night when Jesus and the disciples celebrate the Passover Supper together. It's been an exhilarating week for the disciples. The triumphal entry on Palm Sunday with joyous crowds proclaiming Jesus to be the King, the long-promised deliverer from the line of David who would rule with justice. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus seemed to shun notoriety, even telling people whom he had healed not to tell anyone about him. But on that Sunday, in that parade, he seemed to welcome the recognition. The religious authorities complained that the parade was getting out of hand, that Jesus should tone it down because they didn't want to agitate the Roman authorities. But instead of complying, Jesus told them that if they silenced the crowd, the very stones would shout out his praise. Then... On Monday, Jesus brazenly took on the religious leaders on their own turf, silencing them with his questions and symbolically putting them out of business. 
This all seemed to align perfectly with the expectations of the disciples. Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, and as his close followers, they would surely get the key positions in his new kingdom. They were so certain about what would come next, and they were so wrong. It's easy to be hard on the disciples because, after all, Jesus had told them on several occasions that he would have to die. But we are seeing it through the lens of hindsight, knowing what would go on in the next few days. If we are to understand the instructions that Jesus gives them at the Last Supper, we need to try to put ourselves into their story, the story where the next chapter has not yet been written. Yes, Jesus had told them that he was going to die, but he said lots of cryptic things. In fact, most of the things he said were cryptic, veiled in metaphors and parables. Matthew says at one point that when Jesus talked to the crowds, he never said anything without using a parable. So while the part where Jesus talked about dying didn't sound good, maybe it was just symbolic. Or maybe it would be in the distant future. After all, he seemed to welcome the adulation of the crowd on that Palm Sunday parade. And when those crowds shouted Hosanna to the king, the son of David, he didn't rebuke or correct them. And so they gather for the Passover Seder. So appropriate since it's the symbolic meal that commemorates God delivering the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt. But instead of their hopes and dreams for Jesus being confirmed around that table, they are crushed. Jesus makes it very plain that he is going to die at the hands of the Romans during the Passover celebration, and worse yet, that it will be one of them who will betray him. It's not that Jesus is declaring defeat and abandoning his mission. It's not that he will fail to bring the kingdom. No, but it will be a very different kind of kingdom that he will bring, not one established through a political process and maintained through military might. No, his coronation will be on a cross, and his kingdom will come through the transformed and transforming lives of his followers. The disciples respond in what are probably predictable ways. They jockey for position, trying to figure out who it is who will betray Jesus and who is most likely to stay faithful to the end. They are afraid. They want reassurance. They want more information. They want evidence. Philip, one of the twelve, says, Lord, show us the Father. That will be enough for us. They're fearful and confused, flailing about for anything concrete they can hang on to. It's in John's biography that we get the details of what Jesus said that evening around that dinner table, what instructions he gave to his followers in the face of their deep disappointment and disorientation. John actually devotes four chapters to it, and I can't begin to do justice to all of that teaching, but I do want to highlight some of the themes. Perhaps I'll start by noting what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't address the pressing, 
practical concerns that are dominating the disciples' thinking. Having dashed their hopes of a political messiah, he doesn't give them any details on how his kingdom will come. He doesn't hand out an article from the Harvard Business Review on how to change manage through a major shift in strategy. He doesn't tell them how to organize the early church. He doesn't tell them how to relate to the Romans or deal with the religious elite. He doesn't even prescribe the leadership hierarchy that they seem so obsessed with. Will it be James or John who gets the key cabinet position? For the disciples, those are the real and tangible things that they think they need to move forward. But for Jesus, it seems those things are just the surface, the superficial, the ephemera. Jesus wants to go much deeper than that because he knows that once their hearts are right, and only when their hearts are right, the fruitful life of the kingdom will surely follow. So let's take a look at what he does say on, that even, on the evening of that important dinner. To begin, he encourages them to love each other. This is a message he delivers both with actions and words. First, he takes on the servant's role and washes the disciples' feet. At that time, this would have been a normal part of the hospitality offered to people who had been walking dusty roads in sandals. It was usually done by one of the servants. But apparently, there isn't a servant that evening, and Jesus steps in and does the task. He tenderly washes the feet of each of them. Every one of them. I've mentioned before that I find it astounding that he apparently treats Judas with the same care and kindness as the others, even though he knows he will be the traitor. He shows them love that is generous, thoughtful, humble, tender, and sometimes silent. And then, in case they don't get the point, he explains what he has done. He says, Do you know what I've done to you? If I, as your master and teacher, washed your feet just now, you should wash each other's feet. I've given you a pattern so that you can do things in the same way that I did to you. I'm giving you a new commandment, and it's this. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is how everybody will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for each other. Of course, in one sense, love one another is not a new commandment. Jesus launched his ministry with his Sermon on the Mount and its radical teaching about love of neighbor and love of enemy. And the command to love one's neighbor is far older than that. It's in the Torah at Leviticus 19.18. But there is a kind of love, particularly love of neighbor, that can be transactional and even at some level self-serving. It's how communities survive and thrive in times of scarcity. It's like, my hens are laying well this week, so I'll give you some eggs. But doing that, knowing that if my orchard produces no apples, you'll give me some of yours. But Jesus isn't telling them to love one another in that kind of transactional way. He calls them to love each other as he has loved them. He had nothing to gain from washing their feet. 
They were not going to reciprocate. In fact, he did it knowing the opposite, that Judas would betray him and the rest would deny and desert him. His action was pure grace. It was love without conditions, and that was the first message he wanted to give them in his final meal with them. They were to love each other. Their instinct in this time of stress and uncertainty was to compete with each other, jockey for position, and distrust each other. But Jesus says the way forward is not a clearer plan and better tactics. It is love, the kind of love he is showing them. And in fact, in one sense, that is the plan, the strategy. Jesus says that when they love each other in that way, everyone will know that they are his disciples. The second instruction is to fear not. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Fear not can be a tough instruction. We don't seek out fear or welcome it in. It arrives instinctively and unbidden. But as someone once said to me, you can't help it if fear gets into the car with you. You just need to keep it out of the driver's seat. To not make decisions on the basis of fear, but to trust God, trust in God's love. Okay, that can sound like a bit of a trite wall plaque, so let me be clearer. Jesus is not saying that they shouldn't be afraid because God loves them so much that their lives will be a bed of roses and no suffering will ever come to them. For many of us, that kind of prosperity gospel thinking has crept into our subconscious. We need to root it out because that is not what Jesus Jesus is saying here. Jesus assures them that as the Father loves him, so he loves them. But they are about to see that the Father's love includes allowing Jesus to go through the immeasurable suffering of abandonment, injustice, and crucifixion. We are to fear not, not because nothing bad will happen to us, but because God will be present with us in co-suffering love and will bring meaning out of it. Love each other. Don't be afraid. The third instruction is to cling to Jesus and his way. He gives them the metaphor of the vine and the branches. He says, I am the vine itself. You are the branches. It is the one who shares my life and whose life I share who proves fruitful. For the plain fact is that apart from me, you can do nothing at all. In John's biography, he tells us many of the metaphors that Jesus uses for himself over his three years of public ministry. The road, the shepherd, the bread, the gate. Metaphors that fit the notion that we are to be following Jesus. They are pictures of a God who directs us on our way and provides us with the resources for the journey. But they are metaphors that still give us some latitude. Jesus may be my shepherd, but I can still wander off and make daisy chains in the far corner of the pasture instead of being with him. But now he gives a metaphor that emphasizes a deep level of connectedness. 
We need to cling to him, abide in him, to share his life. And in perhaps a bit of circular logic, he goes on to say that we do that by keeping his commandments, by loving each other. Love each other. Don't be afraid. Hang on to me, Jesus says. And when you do that, you will find joy. He goes on to say, I have told you these things for a purpose, that my joy might be your joy, and your joy wholly mature. Happiness is cheap, but real joy comes at the cost of clinging to Jesus, even as he goes to his death. If you think about the people you know of who have exhibited deep joy, they are also ones who have endured deep suffering. I think of Corrie ten Boom, the anti-Nazi activist and concentration camp survivor. Or Mother Teresa with her iconic smile, a woman who scraped hope and meaning out of the fetid streets in the slums of Calcutta. They knew deep suffering, but also true joy. And so, in Jesus' final message, he remains as countercultural as he was in his first. It's a message of love, peace, connection, and joy. But it's far from the happy, clappy Christianity that sells the myth of prosperity. It's the way of suffering. And at this Last Supper, we are reminded that the way to life in Jesus is dying with Jesus.